The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Is Rotten Tomatoes wrong about Joker? We're going to discuss it today, but first... My friends, my family, if any of them are listening, I consider everyone in this community my family, especially the dogs who I've just gotten word listen to us way more than cats. So I'm on the right side of that debate. Welcome back one and all to Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. Today, Jacqueline Coley, what a film. What a movie. What a debate that was raging a couple of years ago. And now we just get to have a calm, level-headed adult conversation. Imagine that. <laughs> or so we're gonna try <laughs> we we're always gonna try always kick this show off with the best of intentions and then usually it goes wayward probably because it's my fault most of the time but um you uh you having a good week so far otherwise any any news and notes from award season uh yeah the award season is still going and i feel very much like a senior six weeks away from graduation and I'm just, I love this. I love awards, but I can't gumption up any more care for these nominees. I know which, well, we know who's nominated, and then I just have to sit here until April 24th because they postponed it for reasons that seemed good at the time that are really stupid now. Mm. But hey, but hey, I booked my first flight. That's, that's more noteworthy than this painfully long award season. I there booked my you first go. flight. Okay, well, you got to teach me how to do that. I forgot how to do all of that travel stuff because I got some tour dates this summer that I'm going to have to apparently fly to these cities. Uh, there's no magic carpet that's going to take me there. So I got to do some work like it's 2019 all over again. <laughs> I cannot wait. Well, kitties, today, the movie, the guest, all of it, just top-notch entertainment from start to finish because, like I said, we're talking about Joker. Hey, it is award season, and Joker did win some awards and upset some other people that didn't win more awards, but we also have that big DCEU-ish movie that was just released, Zack Snyder's cut of Justice League, so it's relevant, and the score of this on the tomato meter is 68%, so that makes it fresh, but mm, maybe not as fresh as... Some folks would have expected and maybe way too fresh for other people. The audience score is a very healthy, robust 88%. So, Jacqueline, we've seen so many Jokers on screen before, going back all the way to Cesar Romero and his glorious mustache that <laughs> back in the day, Henry Cavill would have said, sorry, I'm not shaving the mustache, but it's a different time and place. Now, tell us about this iteration of Joker. 
Well, I could give you the simple synopsis that Todd Phillips took the protagonist of Taxi Driver and the beats from King of Comedy and made it DC, and that's the Joker. And that is an accurate synopsis, but I will break it down for you. We have Arthur, who is a troubled man who has a disease that makes him laugh uncontrollably in situations that he shouldn't. And he works with people who sort of cast him down. Um, he wears a sort of clown costume in that, but he's a man who's essentially gonna get cut off from his medicine. And he sort of exists in this world as a loner, apathetic person who lives with his mom, who believes that you know the Wayne family is somehow related to him, that he's a long lost son. We may find out later that is not there to be true, but he has a neighbor played by Zazie Beetz who has a young daughter. And this is the woman that he sort of tries to romance as well as try to protect in the form of the young daughter. In all of this, he just becomes more disaffected, more of a loner, more put upon. And in doing so, he decides to, hey, I can be a stand-up comic. Not doing it so well, he comes to the attention of a television show producer who then calls him into uh, his studio to essentially make fun of him. And during that time, he blows him up with a gun and that's the end of the movie. <laughs> there's that? lots of random black people in it just looking... Like, what is this crazy white man doing? If I was like, hey, Jacqueline, can you read this page and put no emotion into it whatsoever? I don't know that we need a second take. That was fantastic. I have an even shorter synopsis than Todd Phillips gave. Here it is. Is that this entire movie Joker, the guy wants to be a stand-up comic? This is just a Tuesday in the world of a comedian. Start to finish. It's just... This is what happens to us day in and day out. And we have an amazing guest that I believe is actually a fan of this movie. So there's going to be some good uh, crosshairs on this episode of Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. But we cannot move any further without introducing the one, the only, the amazing and talented Producey Lucy. Lucy, how hey. is the family? How's the household? The household is great. It's actually dc related my mother martha's birthday today eh happy birthday your martha your mom's name is martha yeah 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 oh cool i was gonna say why did you say that name <laughs> martha um no yeah it's good to be here very excited about this conversation saw the movie for the first time last night uh it's i i can't stop thinking about it so i'm very excited to see where y'all take this Okay. Okay. Prepare because I'm going to ask you in a sec here if you think it's fresh or rotten. But before we do that, here it comes, you know, there's guests and then there's, there's special guests and then there's special guests that are near and dear to my heart because I've known this gentleman for a long time. And I'll tell you this, not many people would wear a suit to every job interview they have, including a job interview that might be at a Barney's Beanery restaurant but that is Mr. Robert Butler III. You know him from the Meaning Of podcast, the YouTube channel, First Cut, which everyone should subscribe to instantly. And he's the co-director and co-writer of the new film, Timestamp. It's a short film that's about to be released. So excited to have him on the show for the very first time. I know him as RB3. How are you, my man? Hey, what's up, y'all? Happy to be here. Happy to talk Joker uh, with the gang. What's good? Uh, so Joker, it does want to be a stand-up comic like Jacqueline and I already mentioned. And the key to stand-up comedy, in my opinion, the hardest job to do at a comedy club is the wait staff because they have to like move around in the dark and not drop anything. The most important job 
is the audience because you need laughs. There is no better laugh on this earth. And it's one of the reasons why, Robert, I need you to tour with me when I go this summer. And I dip my toes back in the water because the best laugh on the planet. So hopefully we get a few chuckles from him, but we may not right now because I got to ask you the question of the podcast. Is Rotten Tomatoes wrong with the tomato meter score of Joker currently sitting at 68%, which is fresh, but not that fresh. What say you, RB3? Well, first of all, I think Joaquin probably got a little bit of a better laugh than me, but I don't know. You might have to ask him about that. Um, if when I'm when I'm looking at this score, I see 68 and it's fresh, but it's not like totally fresh. So I do think it's a little bit low. So I'm going to say it's wrong. OK, RB3 entering his opinion. Jacqueline Coley, do you agree with Robert that Rotten Tomatoes is wrong? Yeah, not for the same reason. Um, I do not like this movie. Okay, chocolate. It is not well made, or it's okay. well made with something that should not be well made, and it's a blatant ripoff of better movies. Yeah, I I am very excited to delve into that conversation with you because I agree with that to a point. But so far, everyone's in agreement. The Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. I'm actually gonna. S- I'm going to sign a little bit. It's a little wrong, but it's not that wrong. I like this movie being fresh is where I'll leave it at for now. Producer Lucy, you just watched it for the first time last night. Is this a fresh movie? Based off of my love of movies that make me think, even though this one is disturbing on so many levels, this might be a really hot take, but I, I think it should actually be certified fresh. I think I agree with the original Venice score. Um, I think I have to rewatch it again. But yeah, I I I liked this movie and thought it was well done. Not a masterpiece, but the themes are just woof. Okay, so we have a lot of different opinions on this right now. I remember watching it and seeing like I thought it was really good. I never need to see that movie again or necessarily want to. But I want to hear what all the critics had to say about this movie at the time of its release. There was a lot of hype surrounding it. There's a lot of mystery surrounding the release of Joker. People were bubbling with expectations. And then the movie comes out. And this is why we have the best in the biz. Our expert review curation manager at Rotten Tomatoes, Tim Ryan, with his segment, Two Minutes with Tim. Hit the music, Lucy. A lot of the discussion about Joker came down to whether or not it's incendiary or it's nihilistic. So what did the critics have to say? In a fresh review, Richard Roper of the Chicago Sun-Times wrote, With Phoenix appearing in virtually every minute of this movie and dominating the screen with his memorably creepy turn, Joker will cling to you like the aftermath of an unfortunately realistic nightmare. However, in a rotten review, Brian Lowry of CNN wrote, It's not too much to ask and more than just being a scold, for justification of an exercise that places such a villain front and center, especially when there is so little light or goodness to balance the darkness. Rotten Tomatoes' critics' consensus is, Joker gives its infamous central character a chillingly plausible origin story that serves as a brilliant showcase for its star, and a dark evolution for comics-inspired cinema. And just for a little more context, Joker won the prestigious Golden Lion Award at the Venice Film Festival, which is the highest honor that that festival gives out. In addition, Joker qualified for certified fresh status on Rotten Tomatoes, which means it had a score of 75% or higher with at least 80 reviews. However, as more reviews came in and 
the critical reaction was a bit more mixed. Joker dropped below the threshold for certified fresh status, meaning if a film falls below 70% on the tomato meter, it gets its certified fresh status revoked. So that's Joker. Back to you, Mark and Jacqueline. Well done, Tim, as always. Yeah, the controversy with this movie naturally bleeded over somewhat to that tomato meter and whether it should be certified fresh as Producey Lucy and RB3 think. I'm happy with it being fresh, and I can leave it at that, Jacqueline. Certainly on the other side of Rotten Tomatoes being wrong that it deserves in Rottenville. And now that we have all those opinions out there in the open, there's only one thing left to do, and that would be kick off our movie talk section. What's that sound like? Am I being too, like, Casey Kasem radio DJ with that? Because I just have so much fun with the musical drops, Jacqueline. Do you think I'm milking it that I should just be more conversational when it comes to me setting up little music teases? I mean, if they're going to give you 90s radio drops, like with the soundboard that Christian has in front of you, you're going to have to play the part that's dealt to you. This is the part that's dealt to us, Mark. So, yeah, right, well, lean into it. Lean into it. Nine. Don't back away. Lean in. Giving away Ace of Base tickets here in about 30 minutes. So let's talk about our thesis. Let's talk about what we really feel about this movie, what it encompasses and represents for us. Robert Butler III, you're our special guest. You have the floor. What would be your thesis statement about Todd Phillips's Joker? Well, I, I personally, I really enjoy uh, Joker because I think it incorporates a lot of themes and issues of class disparagement, mental health. And to me, it gives like a really grim reality to a society left uh, neglected and benign by the rich. And whereas I think the character of Batman is like a metaphor or a fantasy for how far capitalism and a meritocracy could get you. Like you could be the richest superhero and you could like lead the Justice League. Joker shows you the crushing reality of how like the capitalist system um, buries people at the bottom, buries people with mental health issues and buries uh, people who you know don't have money and access to, towards those resources. Yeah, I'll piggyback off that with my thesis because I think that this movie shows us a different side of comic book films and comic book lore in general because you have those forgotten masses of people that are not the superheroes that aren't living at Wayne Manor or in Stark Tower they're just they're they're caught up in their own lives and they're to quote Alice Cooper they're just lost in America and with this one in particular the, the guy's got the he's got a lot of problems and society just their knee-jerk reaction is to poke fun at that and so we as the audience initially are rooting for Arthur Fleck, who is the character that Joaquin Phoenix is playing. And I don't know that that ever fully goes away until the end of the movie when you clearly cross a line. But watching everything that leads up to him crossing that line, you also feel some sympathy, if not empathy, for that character. And so it forces you, the viewer, to ask a lot of difficult questions and have those kind of conversations like the one that we're engaging in right now. So I like Joker for that. I do agree as I option quarterback it over to Jacqueline that this movie to get those messages out uses a, some very reductionist methods that we've seen before. And maybe at least in Miss Coley's opinion, probably have seen better, but Jacqueline, I don't want to speak for you. You're right here. How do you feel about Joker? Yeah, no, that's basically it. Like when it comes to movies, there's just two major sins for me, boredom and originality. And it's just unoriginal. And for whatever it does, and I will say later, I'm gonna give it 
two props that I, I agree with that the film does very well. I don't necessarily consider either of them worth the amount of hype or what I would consider the ripple effects from the glorification of a movie like this. And that's not talking about the violence. I'm just talking about the fact that it wasn't done with like a smart filmmaker in my personal opinion, like it wasn't smart filmmaking. And so when people look at that and the same way that folks looked at Taxi Driver or The Man Who Laughed or The King of Comedy and they try to say, uh, this is something that I wanna be when I'm a filmmaker, I'm like, well, you're gonna be the copy of a copy of a copy, which is gonna be even worse. So I just feel for that, it could just, yeah, it just didn't need to be that way. Yeah, and, and you can have a, a good opinion one way or the other on how Todd Phillips did directing this movie, but some of his comments that came out around the time of the release, me as a comic, I take issue with. We'll get into that later on in the show. Right now, Robert, there was so much going on when this movie came out. Then we finally just got to sit down and watch it, and some of us enjoyed it, and it sounds like you were one of those people. So what's a scene in the movie, Joker, that really displays why you have such a affection may not be the right word for this kind of movie but a respect for it yeah i mean i do have a i do have a lot of respect for joker um you know i when it came out initially i tweeted uh this is the best uh movie since since scorsese gave up coke um so it's definitely um it's definitely i i personally think you know even though it's not the most like um even though it does derive a little bit from those films that Jackie was, was talking, I'm sorry, it was sorry. It, it, well, quite a bit. It, it <laughs> derives quite a bit, but I think it adds a different layer to it um, in a way. I think it adds a little bit of an extra layer to it. And I think for me, I think uh, when I when think about a scene, I think about the scene where uh, the medical clinic off, uh, or the his therapist is telling Arthur that they're closing the clinic and that they're not giving him medication anymore. And she says this line that's like, they don't give a, they don't give an S about people like you. And they really don't give an S about people like me either. Um, and that was from the black woman who was like his therapist. And I think that's an interesting line who, you know, to kind of demonstrate what my overall thing that I love about this movie is that, yeah, it's not just about like, you know, the, 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 the white mentally ill patient who's also being tore down by the system. It's, a, it's everybody. It's, it's black people. It's white people. It's everybody who are not rich, not affluent, and don't have those same resources that like a Thomas Wayne would have. So I, and that's why I think, you know, and the Joker kind of leading this rebellion, I think is reflective of how many people are in that same, same boat and same conditions. Even I didn't know if I really existed. Arthur, I have some bad news for you. You don't listen, do you? I don't think you ever really hear me. You just ask the same questions every week. How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? All I have are negative thoughts. Yeah, the, the movie ended up doing over a billion dollars worth of business worldwide. And one of the reasons why I, I was kind of happy about it is because since moving to L.A., really, my eyes were open to folks who struggle with mental illness, particularly in my field of entertainment. And it just does not get the the attention all the time. It's starting to more now with the advent of social media and people having more freedom to share their experiences. But Joker put that on a pedestal. Unfortunately, Jack went through a lot of other things that were uh, the, the 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 topic of conversation around this movie. So, what what's a scene for you that kind of shows the audience how you feel about Joker? Yeah, I'm gonna jump to that scene, but I, I definitely want to just add something to what 
Robert said, I agree that that speech with the therapist was interesting, but it was that moment in which I realized that something was going on here because that was also the second uh, black person that had interacted with Arthur in a way that I found to be strange in the, that respect. And that was when I was like, oh, I see. And just so I will say this, it, look at how many black people are in that movie and what their relationship is to Arthur. It's very yeah. weird. It is very well, weird. Like the thing about the movie that I dislike more than anything is it makes me ask questions of like, is Todd Phillips equipped to even wade into this pool? Like is the guy who made old school and talking about gangbangs really the guy that I really want as a conduit for subject matter like this? I And I would say, I agree, I agree some people might say something about Jordan Peele when he decided to do Get Out after Key and Peele, but again, I just, I didn't feel he was equipped. The scene I will say is the final scene, um, which is the big murder scene where, you know, Arthur has been called into the television show very much exactly like what Robert De Niro does in King of Comedy. The one thing I will say about this scene is when he comes in there, he's brought onto the talk show and he gets to sort of say what he feels about media. That's who he's killing in that moment. He's killing media. He's killing the people who would point and laugh and say, there's something wrong with you, the mob mentality. That is who he's killing. And the subversion that takes place within the audience during that scene is kind of incredible because again, like Robert De Niro is not a bad person. He's just, you know, somebody pointing out this dude is ridiculous and you need to find something else to do. You're not a very good comedian. You could call it slightly mean spirited, but it doesn't, warrant being murdered but by the end of that scene everybody watching it and even me when i saw it wants him to be murdered um and quentin tarantino actually had a very good quote recently where he talked about this scene and he agreed with me it's kind of one notey um doesn't really go anywhere um it, it doesn't matter if you play the one note well like you know ring the changes a bit he said that that scene is a powerful bit of subversion of an audience especially if you're watching it within the theater the theater is riveted by that moment. And in that moment, they become happy when Robert De Niro gets killed. And I think that is that is clever and interesting how they did that. I just wish it was based on anything that anyone involved in that film did first, as opposed to just recreating what someone else did. But it is a good form of subversion. It also proves to me why the film, even in its best moment, and that is by far one of the best moments of the film, it's basically just a VHS copy. No, you cannot joke about that. Yeah, that's not funny, Arthur. That's not the kind of humor we do on this show. Okay, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. It's just, you know, it's been a rough few weeks, Murray. <laughs> Ever since I killed those three Wall Street guys. Yeah, it's almost like we had no choice but to have Robert De Niro play that part because it was so on the nose with the Rupert Pupkin character that he played yeah. in The King of Comedy that, hey, we can't get away with making this movie unless the guy who was in that other, those both yeah. those other films that Scorsese did shows up and we can kind of have some fun with it. So, Oh, wait a minute. And shout out to Mark Maron because he was my favorite part of this whole movie. Just the fact yes. that he showed up because I love Mark Maron. The rest of it can go sit and spin. Go ahead. Yeah, Mark Maron is a name you're going to hear later on in the show, too. Right now, speaking of people like Mark Maron, and then to a slightly lesser extent myself, stand-up comedy. Anytime there is a scene in a comedy club, in a movie, I'm going to be a bit harsher of a critic with it because I've been 
there thousands of times performing. And so I want it to be an accurate representation of what a comedy club feels like. There's some movies that have done it fairly well, like Funny People was okay at it. Uh, Punchline, the Tom Hanks, Sally Field classic from the 80s. Not necessarily the most accurate showing of what stand-up comedy is. Man on the Moon with Jim Carrey standing on stage and bombing as Andy Kaufman at the beginning I was my gold standard for it. Joker does not exceed that, but the way that Todd Phillips captures the emotions of a comic who thinks it's going well, because Arthur in this scene has finally worked up the nerve to try and open mic night. And he has some jokes written down and he's going to go on stage and give it his all. And I will say that crowd that showed up to an open mic night in Gotham, New York City ish, that is a crowd that any comic is licking their chops at because if that's an open mic night crowd, that is a crushable crowd. There's enough people in there. It's a cool looking comedy club. You can destroy with jokes. And you're kind of rooting for Arthur by this point because you've seen what he's been through already. And he gets on stage and you feel like you're one of the, the parents on the beach in Jaws where you're hoping your kid makes it out of the water too. It's like watching your child at their third grade recital. You just want him to get a couple laughs and it starts looking like it's going okay. And then it takes a turn. You just can't sustain that momentum. And he ends up bombing very different from what his fantasy of that would have been. And to see all of the emotion in that I've been there. Many comics have been there. Every comic's been there before. And so I just thought that was such a well done scene to articulate what Arthur's dreams versus his reality are. Uh, any rise from either one of y'all watching him try actual stand up? I hated school as a kid. <laughs> My mother would say, you should enjoy it. One day you'll have to work for a living. No, I won't, Ma. I'm going to be a comedian. <laughs> I mean, we, I think the thing, the thing with that scene is like, I kind of already had like a little bit of a, you know, you kind of know, like, he's not going to do well. Like, he's not a funny guy. He's messed up. Like, so going into it is, you know, a little like, ah, but then when, you know, when people are like laughing at the end of the scene initially, you're like, what, what, how do people think this is funny? Um, but then it comes back later in a really fun way. So I don't know. I really, I really dug that part too. Yeah. It's just, it's, oh God, it's just, it, it's heartbreaking. Even if it, even if it was any version of Joker, you just, somebody gets on stage. I don't care if it's Cirque du Soleil or it's stand-up comedy. You just want them to pull off the trick. Okay. But it is Joker, Robert. And so there's naturally going to be some hints to the war of batman and in this film in particular the wayne family yeah and that's that was another scene that i really wanted to get to um that i really love but actually before i jump into like what uh i loved about uh thomas wayne in this movie i i did want to respond a little bit to what jackie was saying about like the race uh representation in joker particularly with the black people um i do think you know i think you know that is very accurate jackie and i think that's uh definitely part of the point that's intentional and you know you're kind of alluding to like the relationship that author has with these people with black people in this movie and you know just say it bluntly it's largely confrontational like largely the black people in this movie are serving as like conflict for arthur like you know to get to the next step of whatever he's trying to get in his journey and i think you know i think that choice is very intentional i think uh i think that 
goes and aligns with the whole like theme of, of, you know, blaming others for issues that have not pertaining, like how racist white people blame black people for issues that have nothing to do with the issues that are actually affecting them. The issues that are actually affecting them are capitalism, rich, and like the Thomas Waynes of the world. So, and we talk about like how, you know, if, if a director like Todd Phillips is like skilled enough to, to handle that, I'm not necessarily, you know, going to say if he is or isn't skilled enough to handle it, but I do think he was very intentional in that. And I think, showing that the world's biggest, baddest bad guy in the entire world is actually sub- subconsciously a little racist. I think that's actually a benefit. I think that actually makes it more, you know, more aligned with who Joker actually is as a bad guy, as a villain. Um, but then, you know, but and as compared to Scorsese and Taxi Driver, where the main character is slightly racist, but you're kind of on his side a little bit, so much so that Scorsese has a scene where he puts himself in the movie repeatedly saying the N-word. So he's kind of like, you know, I don't, I don't know if I really trust Scorsese to even handle those kind of kind of conversations and talks to begin with, even back in the 70s, let alone today. That's um, a great but, point. I, I, how do you feel about that, Jacqueline? I mean, honestly, like I it's it's one of the things that the, the difference with with Scorsese with Taxi Driver at that time is because of what that character was doing at that time in filmmaking was revolutionary. Just having an audience be invested with a Travis Bickle type character was uh, sort of revelatory. Um, and I don't think that either one of them are equipped for it. Just look at how many black people they cast in their movies. Like they're just, they're, they're clearly avoiding conversations about race, but they will use it as props to further their narrative, which is exploitative, which is the other part of this movie that I find to be, you know, again, there are ways to do things artfully. And when we get into the part about Todd Phillips, he wants a sledgehammer approach to everything he does. This movie is a sledgehammer approach. His comedies are a sledgehammer approach. And when he was called out for them, um, he gets all upset, but there are other artful ways to do it. And, And I would just put it to you this way, for as many people sort of decrying their ability to still be funny in the current culture, there are tons of people who still find a way to have that balance. Are they perfect? No, but they find that balance. And one of my favorite comics that does that is Mark Marin. Another one of my favorite comics that does that is Patton Oswalt. It can be done. You just have to be smart enough to do it. And that's the problem with the people that are doing these things. They're not smart enough to do it. And yeah, I am saying I'm judging him because this is the thing. If it was a smarter sort of, I would say, softer touch to this movie achieving its narrative uh, goal, it would not nearly be the type of movie that I, I find to be not just problematic, but just, I don't know, unwatchable. It's a fair, it's a very fair point on, on all these sides. And just speaking as, as a purveyor of, of comedy, it's like you can push the envelope, the goal of comedy and, and, of, and of art, like the goal of, of seeing an, even an Avengers movie is like, we want to push the envelope with art, but a sledgehammer isn't always the best tool to push an envelope sometimes you just you just crush the whole the whole stack of them and that's not always the best method of getting your point across but um yeah sorry robert that was just it it was it was it was a great uh great little sidebar there that i think a lot of people in will be inspired to have conversations with their friends and family about too getting back to the the scene in joker where you have thomas and martha wayne you know we know what's going to happen to them. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, we know the Batman story. We know how Batman and connected, how Batman and Joker have been connected throughout the years. The two sides of the same coin, the whole like one bad day concept that was made famous by like the k- killing joke, where they both have kind of turning points. And for Bruce Wayne, that turning point was like witnessing the trauma of his parents being murdered like right in front of him. Um, but, you know, and I think to me personally, why I enjoyed the scene because it showed somebody who was inspired by Joker, somebody who was inspired by like this kind of like anti-rich, anti-class kind of thing, um, actually be the ones to actually kill Thomas, Thomas Wayne and Martha Wayne. Because, you know, when you read the comic books, there's not really a lot of motivation behind Thomas Wayne's and Martha Wayne's killer. Like they're just, you know, is either like Joe, some random Joe guy, or in the 1989 movie, they actually made a Jack Nicholson's Joker. Um, now what's fascinating about, you know, the 89 movie making Jack Nicholson the killer is it really emphasizes how connected these two are. Um, and I think seeing uh, that connection kind of reignited 30 years later in 2019's Joker, but with a slightly different version, it's not Joker himself pulling the trigger, but it was Joker who's responsible for making that action happen. So I think like that kind of like meta commentary of like referencing how their stories are like actually a little more connected, even if they, you know, there's some debate in this movie, if they are brother, if, Mark, if Bruce Wayne and, and, and Arthur Fleck actually are brothers and aren't brothers, you know, that's debatable, but regardless that end scene, um, ultimately ends up connecting their lives forever. And I think that's just, you know, again, the Batman, Bruce Wayne being the rich, um, person who has all these resources becomes a superhero. The Joker, Arthur Fleck is somebody who has no resources, no medication ends up becoming a psychotic killer. So I think that just goes to show you the the kind of disparagement of, you know, that the movie's kind of highlighting. Yeah, I think for a lot of folks, including myself, watching this movie for the first time, that's when I really had my expectations subverted fully is meeting that Thomas Wayne character that Brett Cullen plays magnificently. He's such a good actor. And we're always just trained to we know Batman is dark and brooding and we know why, for the most part, because he's he was orphaned. But with Thomas Wayne, his father Every iteration of that is like, oh, what a stand-up guy. What a great guy he was. In Nolan's Batman, he's literally building an entire community to help everyone in Gotham to try to get rid of crime on the streets. And this Thomas Wayne, Jacqueline, just... He seems kind of like a dick, especially because we are sort of looking at this through Arthur's framework. And we think this guy did father Arthur. And maybe in that, and if you fathered Arthur, how many other people did he father with? Then later on in the movie, it's revealed maybe he wasn't. Maybe that was just something that was poisoning Arthur's thoughts the whole time. But either way, Thomas Wayne, just not the the perfect image of the leave it to beaver father that we had been trained to expect him to be. Yeah, I mean, I think that fits with the 2021 narrative that a lot of people prescribe to, which is that there are no good billionaires. Like to achieve that level of wealth, you're going to have to do some pretty shady things along the way, like just point blank and period, either exploiting your workers at one point or not paying someone or doing contract work um, with people who are nefarious or you know having dealings with people, excusing the behavior of people that are in that billionaire club because it's easier to get along than it is to stand up for what you believe. That sort of prescribes, I think, to 2021. And so actually I thought that was actually fairly smart to sort of add that update to it. Um, but look, Batman is a dude um, who, you know, his parents died and he decides to, you know, do CrossFit and become a superhero. 
so fantastical to begin with that he would become anything that would be able to rival the actual superheroes that we have. But it's also just like, like, I don't know, the motivation behind Batman, the motivation behind the Joker, it's all seemed to be silly, I think, when you uncover it. And so that's one of the reasons why they didn't explore the Joker's backstory for so long. And one of the few um, properties that did, another one that Todd ripped off um, shamelessly here, the killing joke was so divisive among people. Like at the time that it came out, that's the Alan Moore comic series, The Killing Joke, they did an animated updated version of which you should not watch. But <laughs> that that sort of this whole comedian backstory of the Joker is from that. And so, yeah, I mean, this is just, you know, amalgamations of the characters from the comics, better movies, pushing them together. It's not bad in its, its face and understanding. It's just, again, they just take a sledgehammer approach. I mean, the shirtless playing with the gun scene, I seriously thought that this is like midway through the movie, Joaquin Phoenix, who got hella skinny for this movie, um, is playing with his gun and sort of dancing around, very much like Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver. Um, and it's almost exactly the same as it is from Taxi Driver. And I was expecting him at any moment just to turn and say, are you talking to me? By the way, I guess this, this film, if nothing else also, gives this idea of bullies are bad bullies are bad except for when you become the bully to, yeah. to beat up on the bully like it's it's again there there's so many contradictions within this story that i don't even understand what it's trying to say and if it's it even cares scene. in on the subway train yeah. where arthur is is riding home and he has this laugh like Jacqueline said in her synopsis up top, and he and it's just this this thing that he can't really control. It's not laughing because something's funny. He has a laugh, but then he also has this laugh where if he's panicking or if he's actually struggling with something, that's his response, which is obviously throwing people off left and right, including these Wall Street bro assholes on the subway that decide to, for no other reason than just to get some kicks on Friday night, beat him up and and mock him and bully him. And so watching that, we've seen so many coming of age films. We've seen so many action movies. We've seen so many dramas where we're we're not sure who we're rooting for. And then all of a sudden you see someone get bullied and you just want to be there in the room and say it's OK and put your arms around them and lift them back up. And we're naturally inclined to do that, even when it's Arthur Fleck. And we know what he could become watching this movie. But in that moment, you just you feel for him so much. And that feeling gets weaponized later in the movie, I think, in a very artistic way that it can be taken the wrong way for sure. But it also is back to Jacqueline's point, Robert, of when do you stop rooting for someone if they were bullied and that made them the bully? when do we stop pulling for them and when do we say okay well no now we need to <laughs> intervene with a batman like superhero that's in the sequel but one thing about the bullies <laughs> one thing about the bullies before robert answers who are these wall street bros who are also well versed with steven sondheim i would like to know who are mm. these people singing steven sondheim on new york subways <laughs> I can see that dude talking about sports scores. I can see that dude even rapping inappropriately to Kendrick Lamar lyrics. But Sondheim, that was the choice. Hey, cocaine <laughs> is a hell of a drug, and it was everywhere on Wall Street and whatever Gotham's Wall Street is back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, but go sorry, ahead, Robert. Robert. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. 
No, no. I mean, uh, I, I think that for one, that's hysterical. But yeah, I mean, I think that just goes to show you like, that, you know, the kind of metaphor that they're trying to go for with the whole New York thing to begin with, uh, t- you know, to begin with, right? Like how, um, how this Gotham City is kind of, you know, they filmed a lot of it in New York. It's supposed to be like a 1970s, 1980s New York vibe where the streets are full of trash, like the social services are starved out, you know, for like metal for mental health clinics and to just literal everything in the society just looking bad and entire communities just being displaced. This is like post capitalism, post stage capitalism, like at its finest. Meanwhile, you know, which is in real life, you know, in real life, over 40% of wealth in this country is inherited from like generation to generation. Um, and we see a Thomas Wayne in here who is, you know, I don't know if necessarily self-made or, you know, necessarily inherited the same wealth, but we know Bruce Wayne inherits that health, that wealth eventually. But when, uh, but, but, you know, seeing like these Wall Street guys who actually work for the Wayne Corporation, somebody who in this film, we see him multiple times go on the news and say, you know, people who aren't rich, people who, you know, do these kind of things are clowns to begin with. So he's already kind of, uh, he already kind of has like a down looking opinion on people at the bottom anyway. And then Joker is kind of just looking up like, I don't know. I like, you know, like y'all already cut my medication. You already cut my therapy. Like what am I supposed to do? So yeah, I did. I definitely think like that, that aspect of it, that societal aspect of it, um, contributes to like having bullies and having things. And we see it even in today's times as times today become more, um, treacherous and as things like, and now in present day, can uh, continue to get worse and worse. Um, you know, our mental health is deteriorating personal, personal lives are t- deteriorating. You know, we're barely, you know, we're still like a year in this, into this pandemic. We're just starting to kind of climb our way out. These things matter. And, 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 you know, for in the 1980s, you know, Gotham city lifestyle, um, it was the wealth gap had gotten so big that those Wall Street guys could feel like they could sing Samhain and beat somebody up and have no disregard and have no consequences. So, and that's, that's the society, frankly, that we live in now. We live in society now where rich people could do whatever they want and face no consequences. Hi there. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. It's the the illumination of the haves and have-nots in so many scenes in this movie. And I'm just wondering, as we, we sort of put a pin in the, the specific movie scenes that drove our feelings about the overall production is there's a movie that I like to reference sometimes called, I, it, I can't remember, is it Rachel at the Wedding? I think it is the Anne Hathaway movie where Rachel she's, gets married. Rachel getting married or yeah. maybe that's it. And she's basically, Anne Hathaway plays this woman who 
is is just out of uh, another stint in, in rehab. She had uh, an unfortunate accident, and she struggled with a lot of things. And this movie is basically her for a weekend at her sister's wedding, and she gives a speech, which is really uncomfortable. And I watched that movie, and I thought it was so well made, and it it just it creeped me out, and I never wanted to see it again. But I appreciated how well it was made and how real it felt. So this is sort of one of those movies for me where I understand that there's there's lots of messages and it's a finely crafted piece of art. But on the other hand, I just don't feel like revisiting it that much because I don't want to do that to myself. So it's almost like I'm putting my emotions before the unique filmmaking that took place or the reductionist filmmaking that took place, depending on how you feel about it with Joker. Does that, did, did, did you, Robert, or you, Jacqueline, feel that conflict watching the movie? And what does that do for you and your overall opinion of it? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I definitely uh, feel that conflict. I mean, I definitely, you know, for one, empathizing with, with a character like Arthur Flick is already kind of a journey in and of itself. Right. Because, um, you know, you already know going into it, it's called Joker. You know what Joker is. You know, he's a bad guy. You know, he's a villain. Um, you know, the kind of actions that he's going to take place in. Now, obviously going into this, a lot of people didn't know how true to real life this will be, how, you know, how this, how, how relevant these themes were in 2019, um, how relevant the themes in 2019 were to the the film that are taking place. Now people, people didn't expect that going into it. And I think, um, and how relevant it was, it scares a lot of people. Like, you know, a lot of people watch the news. A lot of people, follow social media and see all these um, terrible things happen all across the world. And the last thing that people want to do is experience that in cinema. That's escapism. Um, But, you know, partially to me, I personally think, and I know Jackie disagrees with this, but I personally think that's the originality of it. I think that's, you know, having a, a comic book centric film that is challenging, that is tough to watch, that is almost like, like skin crawling, I think to me is the original part of it. And I think, um, the fact that it's not based on any kind of previous Joker is not like a sequel to Jack Nicholson or a continuation of Heath Ledger or something like that, or it's not Jared Leto from Suicide Squad. The fact that it's his own original character, not even a comic book version of Arthur Fleck exists. Like the fact that it's his own original character to tell his own original piece about the time that we're living in today. I think that is what makes it original. I think that's frankly what made it so, you know, I think it, it, I think that's what the Academy and all the awards and all the acclaim for it was about was because it just it, it was different it was differentiating itself in a lot of really good ways i'm going to try to use a, a video game metaphor here jacqueline then i'll turn it over to you and i should not be utilizing these because the only games i play are tetris on game boy and nintendo wii golf but here we go <laughs> um i uh i think that you can look at it through and i i tend to side with robert a little more with joker in particular but i can also see someone looking at this and saying well, yeah, it was a new Joker, but was it also just putting DC skin on this retread of the King of Comedy and Taxi Driver so Todd Phillips could make that kind of movie more palatable to a wide audience? Did you have to just put Joker skin on this so we could get $55 million to make this movie? Because without that, you just you, you don't have people's interest. But now that we called it Joker, oh, 
Because this movie doesn't really want anything to do with Batman. It hints at it, and he meets Batman as a kid for a little bit, but it doesn't seem like it really wants anything to do with that war. It's just using it as an excuse sometimes. Yeah, I do. Look, this is not to say that when folks do this, it's a bad thing. There have been countless instances of a poppy, whether it be comic book or not, retread of previous movies that are interesting and I think worthwhile. I mean, look at Logan, that is Shane. You know, that's the exact same story, exact same storyline. Carefully look at what Mangle did in Logan compared to what Todd Phillips did in this and it will prove my point. And it's not just because I think that is a more enjoyable movie. Both of them were nominated for an Oscar. In fact, based on Oscar nominations, Joker would be better just on that. The artfulness of what was able to be done with the Wolverine character and the lack of that was Joaquin Phoenix. This is a very big, bold stroke on something that I, I have to push back on you, Robert. People did know how dangerous it was at the time. Many people were very much upset with Warner Brothers for choosing this story with this character to go down. And there were letter writing campaigns and you know a lot of folks were not thinking that this was the best idea. Some of those concerns were overblown, just like people who say, if you play violent video games, you're gonna go out and murder the town. However, there were rightfully people who at the time were like, yeah, you can, but it's sort of like the, you know, Malcolm from Jurassic World. Everybody was so interested in, you know, could we do it? They didn't ask if we should. Oh, and I think that is call. that is the where I leave with this movie. It's like, yeah, but why yeah. did you do this? And, and, if, uh, and a movie that makes me ask questions like, why is this piece of art out here is not necessarily something that I would resonate with in any circumstance. Well, see, that's that's funny because, you know, I say that too. I say like, why why Joker? And I personally think it's, it's something that should be seen. I think, I think you know, we've, get, we've gotten to a point in our society where we have so much like villainization of one side or another side. And, you know, there's like kind of like a lack of compassion or sympathizing. I'm not saying we need to sympathize with people like Joker. We need to sympathize with like, you know, like the like those kind of deranged like psycho killers. I do think there is some sympathy that needs to be given to mental health awareness. I think there's some sympathy that needs to be given to class disparagement class disparagement. And I think making a mainstream superhero or superhero adapted movie that addresses those themes, I think is absolutely essential for me personally. So I could definitely see like why a Warner Brothers executive would be like, I think this would be a good idea. Now that being said, is it, you know, there's obviously nuance. Like, is it, would, would there be an impossibility, would there be an impos a possibility of inciting something dangerous or doing something dangerous? Absolutely. Um, but I think you run that risk with a lot of different art. I mean, you know, Jane Fonda was shot at just for being Jane Fonda because people were obsessed with her. Same thing with Jodie Foster. I'm sorry. Jodie Foster was literally shot at just because she was in Taxi Driver, just for being in Taxi Driver. Like people just do crazy stuff to do crazy stuff. You know, it it it, it kind of goes a lot of different ways. But Lucy, you, you look like you wanted to jump in before we move on to our uh, behind the scenes industry discussion. Yeah, I so. Based off just seeing it last night, I really appreciate what you guys are both bringing up. I think there's really valid arguments actually on both sides. I know it's controversial. Um, I was reading a little bit of the Hollywood Reporter article from Stephen Galloway, uh, which asked the question, should Warner Brothers, should they have made this movie? And um, there's a quote that he said that I that I relate to, which is yes, because art has an enormous beneficial impact on society, even when it skirts the risk of doing harm and makes us question, reconsider, reevaluate. It shakes us um, and makes us uncomfortable and sinks deep in our hearts and minds and changes us forever. 
Um, and the more unsettling it is, the more likely it is to have an effect. And I, I agree with that. That's actually how I feel. I think he encapsulated that what Robert is saying, what RB3 is saying, it's this idea of, you know, yeah, I'm very unsettled actually watching this film and it does disturb me because it is so real. It's one of the most realistic depictions really in especially in a superhero movie of violence. And some people might argue that that's a bad thing and some people are arguing that it's a, you know, it's actually responsible. Um and I have to think more about it, but I think that I also don't want to discredit the other side of like there's risk to doing this. There's risk. People's lives are at risk. And one life is enough, right? Like if one person went out and, you know, did whatever, it's like, you know, there's a responsibility that you have as a filmmaker making these kinds of films. Um, so I think the conversation and the debate is actually really good. I think it's important because our society needs to hear something. They need to do something in regards to all this crap going too. on. I I, I think at the end of the day, this is the beauty of having these kind of conversations is that you may never be on the same side. And, and Jacqueline may never agree with RB3 and myself uh, and, and maybe even Lucy about the quality of this movie. But when you look at the character Arthur Fleck, you are forced to have some measure of if it's not empathy, being there and having been in those shoes or even sympathy where you've never experienced that, but you can at least feel bad for them it at least forces an understanding and so while i i like rb3's point about how you're not necessarily trying to watch this movie and then align with a psychopathic killer but it gives you an understanding as to how we got to that place and if conversations are had even if it's a kid asking his parents maybe especially if it's a kid asking his parents hey i like superhero movies what the hell is going on in that one and it forces a conversation to be had maybe it does impact the life in a positive way but i you're never going to finish the the d debate with joker because there's just so many layers to unpack and hopefully we inspired some of y'all to have those kind of conversations amongst yourself as we hear the show move on to our behind the scenes industry talk and let's have some music to liven things up it's just getting worse with me it's just getting worse this whole radio dj thing i mean i have to go to like some sort of camp to just uh <laughs> get all of the every time i'm setting up music you don't have to turn in to z104 in the morning which was my station that played all the hot hits of the day in williamsburg virginia so how did this movie get to a billion dollars like i i understand people wanted to see it because it was joker but a billion a billion dollars i think it's the 12th highest grossing comic book movie of all time it and it's the highest grossing r-rated movie ever it crushed the two deadpool movies which the Deadpool movies are R-rated and they're super violent. There's a lot of swearing in it, but they ain't Joker. More people went to go see this. Jacqueline, is that because there was so much conversation around this movie? There was so much debate going back and forth. Why is this movie a billion dollar film? Because Warner Brothers marketed it like Batman v Superman. Like they didn't let you in on the game. People didn't know what they were getting when they got into it, but... I also think it's the type of movie, because whenever you get to a billion, you have people that are seeing things multiple times. You can't get to a billion without that sort of thing. It is the type of film that people would go back to watch, not necessarily because they wanted to, but just because it sort of demanded it, just so you could understand it. Because it leaves you with this sort of feeling of what did I just see <laughs> when you get out of it? And I could see a lot of people 
um, wanting to revisit that again. I actually saw it for the first time at the Toronto Film Festival, which was after it had won the Venice Film Festival. And I think winning the Venice Film Festival, the score coming out as it did, and then Warner Brothers leaning heavily into the marketing of this, like it was gonna be The Dark Knight, really helped this movie. For once, I would say you, they lied to you about what this movie was gonna be, but people were so intrigued and titillated by what they saw, they didn't like rail against it. And I think enough people knew enough um, after the initial reaction of what they were probably gonna see. Also, I will contend until my dying days that the only reason why the Joker won the Golden Line is because the people on that jury wanted to give it to Roman Polanski and there was enough of them that boycotted that idea. Because by the way, Roman Polanski's latest film was the one that got the second highest uh, amount of votes at that Venice Film Festival. And rumors have come out that this was the only movie that they could all agree on. Uh, very interesting articles were submitted in our little pre, not, not little, it's a, it's a, it, it's a tome of, of research. The scroll that Mark Hoffmeyer, our amazing researcher sends us every week. It's so interesting to read through and, and parse through Robert. Do, do you feel the same way as Jacqueline that, that, that some of it is just, it's a product of, of marketing and trying to sell it to the widest available audience. Why did so many people care about seeing this version of Joker? We'd already gotten like five other ones. Well, I, I do think it's a little, it is a little bit of marketing for sure. I think it's a lot to do with marketing. They did push it heavy. I think the reception and the conversation that was going on leading up to it ha had a big part of it too. And, you know, that's, you know, you could argue that's marketing as well. Um, but I, I genuinely personally think it's, it's quality. Like if you look at the top grossing movies of all time, usually not all of them, excluding Alice in Wonderland, maybe, but most of them are pretty high quality <laughs> films. And I think you have to have a, you have to be a pretty good movie to hit that, to hit that mark. And I think especially Joker had hit oh, like at the- Oh, Batman v Superman would beg to disagree. <laughs> well, I mean, it didn't hit a billion. Batman v Superman, Batman v Superman didn't hit a billion though. Which was the one why. that hit a billion. Yeah, it got, Batman v Superman was like $45 million short of hitting a billion. And I actually have uh, Mr. Hoffmeyer uh, and his research right here. So th these are just the highest growing superhero films. That, that went above a billion. Uh, Joker actually beat Dark Knight by like $70,000 or $700,000. I want to say that Dark Knight Rises was just above that. Then Captain Marvel, then Spider-Man. Then you get into a bunch of the MCU Avengers fair. But this, as I'm looking at the scroll currently, only Aquaman is higher. Aquaman and the Dark Knight Rises is the only two DC-led properties that gross more worldwide than Joker. And I dare say Aquaman and The Dark Knight Rises are not better movies than Joker, but they're much more easily marketable. And The Dark Knight Rises is like the closing of the Nolan Batman trilogy. We had no idea that that was going to be a movie where uh, Batman's back heals in approximately two days after it was fractured and he can crawl himself out of a pit that nobody has ever been able to do. No athlete has ever, no high jumper. Edwin Moses was not, could no record had ever been set of a convict jumping, making that jump and Batman did it with a broken back. And now I'm getting off track again. Uh, either one of y'all have any fun facts behind the scenes nuggets about this movie or the making of Joker? Uh, the only fun fact I have is one that you're probably going to reference a little later, which is that Todd Phillips got in a lot of trouble by saying that the reason why he wanted to embrace his auteurness was because um, he felt that uh, comedy was being killed by woke culture. And it was hilarious because this was the same year that 
uh, Taika Waititi was lighting up both the critics and the box office with Jojo Rabbit, which was, I would say, a very, in some ways, controversial comedy that still managed not to punch down. And although there were people that criticized it because they didn't like the playfulness of talking about Hitler that way, it was not a movie that got quote unquote canceled. Like criticism is not canceling. But when you do things that are transphobic and fatphobic and are just blatantly mean, it's the meanness that people have a problem with. You can be funny without being mean. And there's been tons of movies of recent note that achieve that. So after Todd Phillips said that, and, and that quote made all of the social media circulation, all that stuff, Mark Marin on his podcast, who again is in the movie cast by Todd Phillips, didn't have a, as I remember, he did, it wasn't like a direct response to Todd Phillips is completely wrong, but Mar Marin gave his take on it. And I, I, him and I have spoken a number of times at, at comedy clubs and it's, he does not feel that way. He, he, he simply does not. And I don't want to put too many words in his mouth because I can't remember what he was quoted as saying, but he did not feel that this is that, that we, that comedy's dead or that we can no longer do comedy in the same way. If anything, I feel like this sort of culture has just let comedians know what is funny and what is not funny. At the end of the day, comics, whether you're going up there and you want to just do a bunch of fart jokes or you want to have some insightful political commentary, the goal of stand-up comedy is to make a crowd laugh, is to entertain, is to be the 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 nightly entertainment for a group of strangers. And there's a bunch of strangers on social media, and you as the comic have to wade through those waters and say, well, that person's just trolling me or that. But then you can also look at, well, they have a point and it makes you a better comic. So I'm, I'm never going to push back against any sort of quote culture that forces you to be better as yeah. a funny person. I also will add the difference between what Todd Phillips is asking is Todd Phillips is asking the difference between the Big Bang Theory and Ted Lasso. Both of those are comedies. One of them is clearly smarter in a lot of different ways. You know, when you look at a show like Insecure compared to a show like Mom, nothing against those shows, but they very much fall in a very formulaic, tried and true way of making people laugh in family situation comedies. And shows that push that without being mean, I just find them to be done by smarter, quote unquote, comedians in a lot of ways. I do think it is more difficult to do, but it's not impossible. And I just think some people don't have the skill set. Well, do you, do you find Joker to be like mean or do you find Todd Phillips to be mean? Like, is it? Oh, no, not Joker. I, I don't feel Joker is particularly mean. I think it's exploitative at the worst parts of it, but it's not particularly mean to any of the subjects involved in it. I was talking about more his comedy, which he's, you know, said that he could no longer produce because his comedy was of a certain time that, you know, some of the stuff that we used to, I think, I mean, we've talked about this on episodes on the show with stuff like Ace Ventura. These things don't always hold up. And I don't see why anyone, I think what the Todd Phillips of it is all, it's like, well, if you seem to be somebody that could have a different note, I think you would not find yourself so boxed in. But since that's the only note you know how to play, you feel like they're trying to cancel you. But that's your choice, bruh. That's not reality. It's a little like the Bee Gees documentary because the Bee Gees got boxed into being this disco group. And then the world railed against disco and they're like, well, okay, we can still sing. We can do whatever we want. But then they were just pigeonholed by the Bee Gees. Did woke culture ruin the Bee Gees? No, that's not the real question. <laughs> Actually, anti-homophobia ruined disco more than anything else. But to your point, it, it was.
it, it was it was also time for disco to just kind of take a little step back and then have great artists like Van Halen go into the forefront oh, again. Oh, look <laughs> at you. Hold. Or and Van Halen did incorporate disco into some of their stuff too. So as did Kiss and, and other bands. So, uh, Robert, you got any uh, fun facts about this movie before we uh, close up shop here? Um, yeah, I mean, one of the fun facts that I kind of thought they they were originally looking to cast like Alec Baldwin as Tom and Wayne's uh, Tom, T- Thomas Wayne's look at Tom and Wayne. I'm thinking like they're Wayne brothers, uh, <laughs> Thomas Wayne's, uh, and uh, but everybody everybody agreed that the parallel between. Alec Baldwin and Trump will be a little obvious here. Uh, but I do think that just goes to show you like the intention, like the intention behind the filmmaking, like they wanted to really emphasize like the contemporariness of it, the, the, the elitist versus the, the people at the bottom of it and how that it literally, you know, Thomas Wayne's running for mayor and Joker and he ends <laughs> up, you know, he, he probably end up going to, going to win and Trump, you know, Trump is Trump. And, especially when you're looking at the New York comparison of it all, right? Like, you know, this is supposed to be like the New York version of Gotham city. And Trump is like that, that big New York guy who has these giant towers, but at the bottom of these towers, there's just trash all around them, homeless people. And yeah, all these disparaging factors. So that to me is a, a fascinating fact that I, I personally found of it. And, you know, going back, you know, we're, you're talking about like the billion dollar conversation. I think that like attention of relevancy was also a big reason why it was so successful because I think in 2019, there was like a little bit of a bug people had. Like when you look at movies like Joker, Parasite, which ended up winning best picture, Ready or Not, which was an amazingly underrated horror film. Lots of um, kill the rich movies. Yes, exactly. <laughs> even even to, to a certain extent, Uncut Gems and to a certain extent Us dealt with those like kind of uh, themes as well. So I, you know, this was like a particularly heated time for people, you know, who are just really tired of Trump, really tired of being broke and poor and really tired of just living in this society. So is there a cut? Has, has anybody done this on YouTube? Like, like you just splice in Alec Baldwin's impression of Trump on SNL whenever Thomas Wayne is on screen in Joker. Is that? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's I mean, good. Right, fans I- get to work. I mean, (laughs) Alec Baldwin plays a Trump-like character in Black Klansman. I mean, he, like, opens the movie Mm -hmm. basically doing, you know, Mm -hmm. that sort of America First stuff. Also, I want to give a shout-out to Joaquin Phoenix, who seems like just like a good dude who's over Hollywood, who saw the bad side of Hollywood very young with, like, the death of his brother and seemed to have a very difficult upbringing and kind of on the other side of it is somebody that cares a lot about animals cares a lot about um, sustainability and how he was on the Oscar run for Joker. As much as I was so not happy that he was winning in comparison to some other roles I thought that were better, I do, I earned a lot of respect for him during that. He talked about sustainability. He called out the BAFTAs in their face about their lack of diversity, which is like, yo, that is probably one of my all time ballsy moments. He's literally holding a statue from an organization that he says do better. And I uh, I thought that that was, it takes a, a certain level of, um, I would say intestinal fortitude to, to, to stand up there and do that in that room, which according to Lulu Wong, uh, you could hear a pin drop. Mm. Well, it's it, what, what's so funny is that you have Joaquin Phoenix and Robert De Niro, right? They're two of the very lauded actors that we have currently working in Hollywood today. Very different approaches to their craft. As I was reading some of the behind the scenes of when they met for the first time, the first time they were on set for this movie together, 
it was a good morning and that was about it. And Joaquin is famously pretty method with it. And again, he lost 52 pounds for this role under the doctor's advice, the same doctor who advised him on how to lose weight the most healthy way you can for the master. And De Niro, by contrast, insisted on every scene that he was in. He wanted to have the whole cast there to do a table read. And Joaquin hated that idea. And he just kind of mumbled through his lines after being forced to this table read. And apparently after the shoot or maybe sometime during the, the shooting of the movie, De Niro and, and Phoenix had like the mea culpa, not, not even an apology one or the other, but just like an understanding that we're artists who work differently, but we can get through this thing together. And so I just found it fascinating, man. I mean, again, Robert, I don't know how directors do it. And I know that you're a super talented one. I've just, so you see so many people who start out either stand-up comics or actors or whatever it is, and then they, they want to get to directing. It looks like the most arduous, impossible, thankless task you could possibly ask for. Why are you doing this to yourself, young man? I, I just, it's just the passion. It's what drives, this is what drives me. I'm sure it's what maybe drives Todd Phillip. I don't know what drives him, honestly, because there's so much, like, there's so much difference, like, as composed to something like this versus like Hangover, right? Like, <laughs> there's such like a range there, right? And I'm trying to, I have a tough time, like, figuring out, like, what, what's his through line, even with War Dogs, which was another, like, kind of uh, more of a serious transition kind of film um like what's kind of his uh what's kind of his vision what's kind of his through line and for me personally i kind of see todd phillips as a guy who um wants to look he wants to look at characters at he wants to he writes himself into films he writes himself into his characters um and makes it you know makes them like him like like the like the I don't want to say frat bro. I don't think he's necessarily like a frat bro kind of guy, but you know, he has that kind of like more free spirit kind of energy, like, you know, kind of thing. And as Jackie said, maybe that's what leads to some of those like more problematic comments and like ideas about like woke culture or whatever. But I think, you know, he is also interested in like exploring, like what's the worst thing um, like a lead character can go through extensively all the time. Like, you know, outside of mostly like their own control. Like if you look at hangover, like these guys are kind of like without, you know, control of whatever's happening. War dogs is like, Oh, like these, you know, all of these different outside circumstances are getting them rich, but it's also getting them in really, really big trouble. So, um, it's just fascinating. I feel like his filmmaking is much more about the society than about the individual. And it's about like the, the study of, of a character or characters, um, trying to, grapple with that society so i think it's interesting i think he's a i think he's a decent director I, like i really love hangover is one of my first comedies i ever saw in theaters personally so i'm always going to be a little biased to do and like i said i enjoy joker and i think the direction you know some scenes were a little weirdly directed but i think we look at a scene like the bathroom scene like when he's you know just after that like uh, that's definitely a choice it's not you know, even in uh, something like a taxi driver or a king of comedy, there's not a scene in any of those movies where Robert De Niro is going to go inside of a bathroom and dance to classical music. So, you know, I, I appreciate the Todd Phillip voice and his directorial style. I will also say that Staircase in Brooklyn, I feel bad for anybody near there because that place is like inundated now. Oh yeah, the, oh, like that, the yeah, it's become the new uh, the new exorcist steps. You know, Ugh. people just trying to get their workout in. People just trying to go to work, and uh, you got a bunch of tourists taking pictures on those steps. Well, we have unfortunately got to move on, but it's good news too because it's time for our mailbag. 
just always think Abbott and Costello and like their pants falling down when I hear that music. So we love getting emails from you all. You can email us anytime. RT is wrong at RottenTomatoes.com is the email address. And our fan email that we're highlighting today is from Miranda Black. And Miranda has just a, a, a suggestive correction for Jacqueline Coley based on a recent episode. Here we go. Hello, Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. First of all, I love the show. I look forward to listening every Thursday. I'm not an avid movie watcher, but I love hearing Jacqueline and Mark debate and have a good time. And the guests are always stellar. No change in that this week, Miranda. Your show makes me excited about film in a way I haven't before. On the Coming to America episode, I think Jacqueline made a small yet humorous mistake. While introducing the guest for the episode, Jacqueline mentioned that she only says what's written for her, like Ron Jeremy. Did she oh, mean I did. Ron Burgundy? I did. I did probably say that. <laughs> did you I mean did. Ron Burgundy, Burgundy, Will Ferrell's character in Anchorman, the one who says, I'm Ron Burgundy. And yeah. Ron Jeremy is a famous porn star. And so yeah. while the thought of Jacqueline with a receding hairline mullet and a mustache is hilarious, I don't think that's what she was going for. Although, who knows? Maybe Ron Jeremy also only says what is written for him on his teleprompter. After all, he's not known for his great acting and improv skills. Thanks for making such a fun and funny podcast. Keep up the entertaining work. Best Miranda. Jacqueline, now it's time to come clean. Did you, in fact, mean Ron Jeremy or Ron Burgundy? Definitely Ron Burgundy. I was not referencing the, the scandal-ridden porn star from the 70s. Listen, also, though, can we talk about the fact that we have several people that listen to this show and nobody clocked that? Or if they did, they didn't tell me. Um, so I was just going to go ahead and say, um, shout out to you, Miranda, for keeping us in line. It definitely is Ron Burgundy, which is the absolute truth. Whatever is in that outline, I will read it. Um, uh. it, it it's true. And somebody's going to put Ron Jeremy in there again to see if I actually do it. And I probably will. Yeah, I probably be a will. Little test for Jacqueline. I'm so sorry. I didn't catch it. I got two fans emailing about it and I had no idea. I didn't either. I remember it's hearing okay. Ron Jeremy. I, I remember hearing Ron Jeremy and thinking and thinking you I, I, I kind of thought it was like an inside joke maybe that you had. And, and I was just on the outside. So I was going to be like, oh, excuse me. I need to know what you're laughing at before you move on. So I haven't seen Anchorman in a minute either, though. So I, I need to catch up with my, that. And my dad listens to this podcast. So hi, sorry. Jacqueline's dad. Sorry. <laughs> Because I know he doesn't know about Anchorman. Because I think the last movie he saw in the theater is when I made him take me to Men in Black 2. So, okay. no, actually, I take that back. I think he and my mom went to Black Panther. I'm almost positive about that. Don't quote me on it. But I'm pretty sure they went to Black Panther. But I, I that, that, that'd be about it. Isn't it weird when you hear your parents went to see a movie? Like, like the kids are out of the house and they moved on and they're living their lives. And here the parents went, it's like, oh, good. You guys got out. You guys went out. I remember my dad telling me that him and my mom went to go see uh, episode three, Revenge of the Sith, without any kid. And I was like, good for you. You know, we, we love these movies. Go. You, you guys go have a night. Get some popcorn. Cap off the Ellis Star Wars family tradition. So shout out to all you parents out there going to the movies. Uh, we're closing <laughs> the show up. I do have a little trivia nugget that I'm very excited to get to. Before I do that, Robert Butler III, thank you so much for joining us. This was Maybe the most in-depth uh, conversation that we've had on the show and the <laughs> subject matter certainly helped that, but also your insight and your coming to this from the perspective of a director yourself. So where can everybody find you on social media? And also, what is the project you're working on? If you want to tell us about Timestamp and when we can check that out, please, the floor is yours. 
Um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at director RB three. Um, you can also follow first cut. Uh, that's my YouTube channel that I do with, um, Andres Ace Cabrera and Sabina Ramirez. Um, really, really fun stuff. Um, you could check us out at YouTube, uh, first cut. And if you want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at first cut TMO. Um, and yeah, what I'm working on, I'm working on timestamp is very like, you know, we're, we're, um, looking to release, through like Amazon Prime, like, you know, little, you know, if you want to put put up some little dollars to pay for it, that'd be really appreciated. Um, and yeah, uh, I'm really, really excited to, to get it out there to people. It's been a long process, but, you know, we're here now, so. And speaking of Amazon Prime, you can catch Dog Stepfather, my comedy special on there that Robert and Christian Rubalcaba, our own esteemed engineer, both uh, helped me with that one because without them, it's just me telling jokes to people and now the world gets to witness it. For better or for worse. Um, here is your movie trivia question today, kids. And yes, it is about superhero movies. So I mentioned that Joker is 12th currently as far as all superhero movies worldwide box office collections go. The top four movies in the world of superhero across the world all have Avengers in the title. It's either Avengers... Infinity War or Endgame or The Avengers or Age of Ultron, one of those. What is the next highest movie on the superhero list? What is the highest grossing superhero film that does not have Avengers in the title? Wakanda. Jacqueline, Robert? Wakanda. Okay, that's mm, not Black the name Panther. of a movie. That's the name Black of a place Panther. in a movie. <laughs> Black Panther. <laughs> Robert, do you agree Dang. with Jacqueline? Mm, uh, yeah, I mean, well... Since Jacqueline said it, I don't want to give the same answer. So I'm just going to say um, um, Incredibles 2. <laughs> okay. And Lucy, who do you think is right? Deadpool. You're going to go Deadpool? Deadpool. All right. Robert yeah. went Incredibles 2. And Jacqueline went with the correct answer, Black Panther. It is, in fact, Black Panther. And I dare say we would have a more aligned podcast talking about that great movie than we did today. But hey. We're here to talk about conversation, and so no, I'm gonna we, come hard against Black Panther. Forget everything I've wrote and said for two years. Uh, F that movie. Let's get it on the podcast. See, I'm gonna lie, uh -oh. and then they're gonna make it be on the podcast, and it'll be like Psyche Mom, make your booty shine. I was gonna say we we need to call Jacqueline's dad. Jacqueline's been nipping on the sauce before going on the show. <laughs> She's throwing Black Panther uh -oh. hate out there. Uh, Jacqueline, what are we? Uh, what wh where do we like the kids to uh, to reach us at, and how do we like them to treat our podcast? Besides, with respect and love. Yes, with respect and love, and keep me on my toes if I if I have any other misquotes. But yeah, please email us, guys, at RT is wrong at Rotten Tomatoes. We love, love, love hearing from you. What you think about the show? More importantly, what movies you want to recommend? I think our entire programming guide for the next couple of months is definitely coming from fan recommendations. You guys are the ones that help us tell us where to go. You point us in the direction, um, and yeah, you can reach there. You can always hit mark or myself up on our personal social media channels and you can always read me on rottentomatoes.com talking about whatever i can mostly awards and next week's movie is we're not sure yet we're, we're not quite sure yet but we're gonna throw a couple of these out here we're gonna throw a couple suggestions your way it's either going to be the rotten movies of Dwayne the rock johnson or 
It's going to be the video game rankings according to the tomato meter. So we're still having some internal debates about which episode we're going to record first. We're setting up some cool guests for y'all. So once we get all of our schedules aligned, it's either going to be The Rock and his rotten movies or the video game rankings according to the tomato meter, where unfortunately I still think Angry Birds 2, I want to say, is the top and not Mortal Kombat like it should be. But that new Mortal Kombat trailer, oh boy, I'm getting all worked up. Just thinking about it. So for everybody here, my esteemed co-host, the one who makes me sound semi-competent, Jacqueline Coley, Robert Butler III, our special guest. Check out his film, Timestamp, which he co-directed and co-wrote. Christian Rubalcaba, our great engineer. Producy Lucy, who keeps us all in line. I am merely Mark Ellis, and we will catch y'all next week right here on Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong.